This is part two, really, of a study entitled Learning to Walk. As we've been studying Paul's letters to the the many churches, one thing that Paul makes clear is that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are made new. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As we said, old things have passed away, all things become new. And then in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He goes on into chapter 4 in Galatians and says that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters of God. We've been redeemed and we've been adopted into the family of God. And then in Galatians 5, he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then in Romans 8, Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's just a a taste of our identity in Christ. The problem that we looked at last week is sometimes we know what God's word says, but what we feel doesn't align with what God's word says. And are we going to trust God's word, or are we going to trust our feelings? We might say, God says that I'm free, but man, I... I feel like I'm in bondage to that same sin. God says that I'm complete, that I've been made perfect, so why do I feel so broken? God says that he will never leave me or forsake me, but why does he feel so different or so distant right now? I know that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, but why do I feel like I'm such a work in progress? If I'm a new creation, why do I still feel like that old man? Why do I still battle my old nature? And that's where we landed on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, Paul writes, therefore the prisoner, not of the Roman Empire, but the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you to walk. To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The work is finished. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. Now we are learning, those of us who have put put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, we are learning what it means to walk in that newness of life. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in that newness of life. We are learning to walk. We've spent a life learning to sin, 
and we practiced it, and we got really good at it, but then Jesus comes, and He transforms us. He indwells us with His Holy Spirit. He gives us new eyes, and new ears, and a new heart, and new desires, and we don't really know what to do with them yet. But that's what sanctification is. Colossians 2, 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says, so walk in Him. So as we looked in, really we kind of skipped ahead to to verse 17 of chapter 4, and we kind of looked at the things not to do. As we're learning to walk, these are the things that we want to avoid so we don't stay stagnant, so we don't stay clothed in that old man. We've been freed from the old man, but we know that Paul says that we have a responsibility. That old man no longer has power over us, but we must cast aside the old man and put on Christ. Isn't that what he says in Ephesians 4.22? Put off concerning your former conduct. That old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And where does that begin? What did we talk about last week? Where does the battle begin? In the mind. Taking every thought into captivity, setting our minds on the things above and not the things below. Whatever's pure, whatever's noble, whatever's of good report, meditate on these things. Ephesians 4, 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in what? The futility of their mind. And I ask the question, when do you do your best worthless thinking? Usually for me, it's right before I fall asleep. I have arguments with people that aren't even there. I worry about things that I have no control over. I worry about whatever news article I read right before I fell asleep. I get angry. I get upset at the fallen world we're living in when I have an opportunity to sit before the creator of the universe and have communion with him, instead I practice futile thinking. And if we're going to walk the way that we have been called to walk in that newness of life, we have to win the battle of the mind. In your word, David says, I meditate day and night. Because of this, I'll be like a tree firmly planted along streams of living water, bearing fruit in and out of season, Psalm 1. That's what we desire. But first and foremost, Paul says we have to, bet, we have to win that battle of the mind. And that starts with waking up, maybe not touching that device for a little while, setting our minds on the things above, and then when we go to sleep, Put that device away and think on the things of the Lord. So that was last week. Now we're going to jump back into verses 2 through 16. Because that was what not to do. Now Paul's going to show us the environment that is most conducive to maturity. 
He's going to explain to us where we grow up, where we learn to walk. And for many of you, it won't be a surprise. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord Jesus, you are the king above kings. You are the name above all other names. In you, we have all that we need. In you, we have fullness of life. And Lord, we ask for your spirit. We know that your spirit will speak to us. So our prayer is that we would have ears to hear and a willingness to respond. Lord, I lift all those here and those listening online that um, are just dealing with physical pain right now. We live in fallen bodies and we are eager for the day that um, we see the fulfillment of your coming and you give us new bodies, bodies that are made for eternity. But now in this broken state, there's pains and aches and sickness. So Lord, I pray that you just bring comfort for those that maybe are just dealing with a mental heaviness, Lord. I pray that you'd provide relief and clarity. Your word says that you bring a spirit of love and power and a sound mind, not a spirit of fear. So, Lord, we know that our witness is walking in confidence, knowing who is in control. That's what this world needs to see. And we don't want to fake it, Lord. We want to know without a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by you, and that you are all-powerful, because that is what is true. Help us to walk in that. Lord, guide us this morning as we study your word. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together, in, starting in verse 2 through verse 16. You know what? Let's jump back to verse 1. Why not? It's there. I, therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beg you, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, fighting to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? The equipping of the saints to build up the body of Christ. For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not that we should that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body by the edifying of itself in love. If you want to know what it looks like to grow up, to learn to walk, man, this is it right here. Verses 1 through 16, this is that big word, sanctification. This is what it means to mature in Christ. It's what it means to learn to walk. Where do we best learn to walk? I know we're in church, and you don't think you're allowed to talk, but where? what environment do you think is most condu- conducive to growing up in Christ? In fellowship around one another. And you guys have heard me say this so many times, but it's not that I, it's my idea. It just comes up in scripture all the time. We were created to be with one another. That term, one another, appears over 101 times in the New Testament. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another. Instruct one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one. I'm not going to do all 101. (laughs) Only 67. Welcome one another. Instruct one another. Through love, serve one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Guys, how can we do any of those things if we are not with one another? in fellowship, in a community of like-minded believers. And it's so easy to say, oh, that's what the pastor is supposed to be, or say. He's supposed to say, hey, make sure you come to church. Guys, my heart is that we all grow up, and we grow up when we serve one another. Growing up and edifying one another for the sake of the ministry, right? Isn't that what Paul said? But when we hear ministry, what comes to mind? When we think of ministry, I think we think about the things that we do. You know, we serve in children's ministry. We set up chairs. We do the lighting. We, it's things that we do. No, ministry is about ministering. And who do you minister to? People. Ministry is about serving people. Now, there's things that we do to serve others, but sometimes it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that we're doing this for God and for one another, building one another up for the sake of the gospel. And here's the challenge that we all face because we all live in the same culture. The perception of what church is today is just broken. It's just wrong. And you can look around, it's a national issue, but there's so many missing pieces. And when I say missing pieces, I'm talking about missing people. And not just people not showing up on Sunday, but even the heart posture when people do come to church on a Sunday. For most people, 
and, and, and I, I'm not trying to use hyperbole here, I think this is true on average. For most people, church is either a 60 to 90 minute service in which they are the spectator and they are the consumer. They come in, they put the money in the offering, and now the worship team performs for them, the pastor entertains them, the children's ministry watches their kids, somebody maybe even prays for them, they leave and get lunch with their friends, and they ask that question, well, what did you think of church today? How was church? And then there's responses like, well, the pastor's message was inspirational or funny or boring. He shared a joke. It didn't land well. Worship was too loud. It was too soft. Someone wore too much perfume. And there's this real clear indicator that we're there simply to receive. If you don't think that's the case, go look at Google reviews of churches. The fact that that even exists is mind-boggling talking about the body of Christ, reviews for the body of Christ. See, the American church has reduced the physical body of Christ down to a 60-minute performance. And then we wonder why we're not maturing in the Lord. We wonder why we're like children tossed to and fro by our former lusts and our sinful desires, and we wonder why our life is absent of true self-sacrificial love. As we talked about last week, love is patient, love is kind, and then we try to put our name in there. Dan is patient, Dan is kind, Dan is, and you're like, oh, it doesn't fit, does it? Well, why doesn't it fit? because maybe I'm not growing up. See, we're not called, I know you've heard this before, but we're not called to go to church, we're called to be the church. It's not a place we go to. Paul's letter here is not a, a legalistic list of things we need to do, it's a reminder of who we are now that we belong to Christ Jesus. It's really a description of Jesus and then a description of us when we put on the person of Jesus Christ, when we learn to walk in him. See, when Paul writes, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, he didn't say, go hire the most talented staff possible and let them do the work of ministry, which is really how many churches operate today. What he is saying is we all have different callings, we all have different gifts, we have different roles to play, but there is one God, one Jesus Christ, one Holy Spirit, and we all fit perfectly together for the work of one ministry, and that's to build up the body of Christ to go out into the world and reflect the love that God has for the lost. Guys, if we're just a consumer, if we're just a a spectator, then we're missing out. If you're a consumer, if you're a spectator, I'm missing out. Because you have a gift that God has given you, and it's a unique gift, and it's a gift that God has given you to reflect a part of God's character that you're supposed to show me. 
And any of us that are not operating in our gifts, this isn't meant to sound harsh, but we're robbing the body of seeing Christ in a way that only you've been uniquely gifted to offer. So what Paul is doing here now is explaining what this uh, fellowship looks like and how to protect it and how we are to behave and treat one another as we gather together as a family. So if you look at verse 2, Paul says that with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and then into verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity. That means that we're eager to remain unified, that we make every effort to remain unified. This is what Jesus prayed for in the garden, isn't it? Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. And Paul even warned us, watch out for those who cause division. Now, I think we struggle with unity today, right? Because there's so many false doctrines and so many false gospels, there's certain things that we just cannot be unified with, right? But what happens is, and it's been said before, Christians are the only ones to have a firing squad in a circle. That we get in a circle and we raise our weapons and we fire at one another. We're cannibalistic sometimes. And in our attempt to preserve sound doctrine and teaching, sometimes we go the opposite direction and we divide over the smallest, simple, and maybe not even small things, but things that are open-handed issues. They're not gospel issues. They're not issues that we should be divided over, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, Jesus said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. So that's what we're wrestling with, right? Well, what do we divide over, and what do we unify over? Well, Paul told us what we're unified in. There is one body, one Spirit, There's one hope of our calling, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We are unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand when we talk about being unified in Christ, a Mormon may say, well, yeah, I serve Jesus too. Okay, what Jesus? Tell me about your Jesus. Jesus, the brother of Satan? Because that's not the same Jesus that I read of in the scripture. Jesus, the created being? One day we will become gods like God himself? That's not the same faith. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he says there will be division. Mother will be divided against father, son against father, because of faith in Christ. But those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, it's not unity with the world. It's not what the so-called tolerance effort is. 
See, the unity that the world preaches, we see that in Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole world. The world's unity is rebellion against God. We cannot unify with that. We are not in line with that. Our unity is in Christ, the true Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures. And for that we fight. So how do we fight? Well, what's the first word Paul gives us in verse 2? My Bible says lowliness. What do some of your translations say? Humility. Paul starts with humility. And that seems simple enough. Some of you may be thinking, oh, I'm really humble. Well, that proves you're not. So, but this word that Paul uses for humility in the Greek, it would have made a lot of Gentile believers very uncomfortable. Because humility for the ancient world was seen as a character flaw. For the Greeks, that word that was used for humility was almost always in a negative context. It meant the crouching submissiveness of a slave. If you remember, under the Roman Empire, there were hundreds and thousands of slaves, and that word humility was also often used as the crouching submissiveness of a slave. It meant subservient. Almost meant less than. But then Jesus comes along, and he gives us a new standard by which to live, teaches us what it means to live in lowliness of mind. He teaches us what it means to put the needs of another above our own and to recognize their intrinsic worth because they are created in the image of God. He came not to be served, but to serve. And in the body of Christ, what the outside world would say, oh, that's weakness, we say, no, that is strength. That is necessary to put your need, not your wants, but your needs above my own. See, humility is vital for maintaining unity because as one author put it, pride lurks behind all discord. Any, any chaos in the body of Christ can always be traced back to pride. Pride's that hand that pulls at the seams of what binds us all together. Pride says, this is what I want, and I'm going to have it my way. And that's the enemy of unity. So Paul says, with humility, first and foremost, and then he says, gentleness. Now, this word was often looked at more favorably, obviously, than humility, And this word gentleness, again, it doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean simply mild-mannered. It may have a, a piece of that, but it's the quality of emotional moderation. Think about that for a moment. It means that we don't live in the highs and the lows of our emotions. We're not reactive. We don't act out in anger. Aristotle even celebrated this 
because he hated extremes. He called it the golden mean, the mean between being too angry and never angry at all. Gentleness, again, is not the same as weakness. It is strength under control. It is controlling our actions despite our emotions. What do, children's, what, what do children do with their emotions? Oh, I have a four-year-old. I tell him all the time, get your emotions under control. It doesn't work. <laughs> but they act out. There's, there's no disconnect or there's no control. If I feel this way, I'm going to express it, and I'm going to act out, and I'm going to throw a fit. Too many of, this, uh, of us are in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, and we're still doing the same thing. We don't have our emotions under control. And that's really dangerous when we're living life in a, a community with others because we can say things that we can't take back. We can act in a way that no matter what, someone may forgive us, that gets filed away and they know, oh yeah, that person treated me that way. It's, it's vital. That word gentleness, it's a term that they use for domesticated animals. We rule over our emotions, not the other way around. Again, that's vital in Christian communities. So we're talking first and foremost about humility and gentleness. Who are we talking about? Where are those two things found in perfect balance? Who are those two things found in perfect balance? It's the character of Jesus Christ. Do you know how I know that? Because he describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. Does that mean Jesus is weak? Oh, it's strength under control. So those two, humility and gentleness, they, they partner up. They're a, a happy pair. So are the next two, long-suffering. That's patience with one another when we fail in the areas of the first two. So when we do act out, are we willing to suffer long with the reality that people are still growing and maturing. It's patience with one another when we fail in the areas of humility and gentleness. It's understanding that we are all a work in progress. What does Scripture say? Love covers a multitude of sins. I I know I've used this analogy before, but I think it's important to remember there's a a young family that had purchased a fixer-upper And this house hadn't been lived in for years. The front yard was overgrown with weeds, taller than than you. I was going to say taller than me, but that doesn't mean much. But taller than you. And when they got in there, the first thing they set out to do was start to get that front yard under control. So they started working on it. 24 hours in, they had barely made a dent in it. But the people in the neighborhood knew, oh, as they drove by, hey, someone must live here because it looks a whole lot better than it did yesterday. And so their neighbors came over and greeted them and said, hey, we knew someone was here. But if you had never been in that neighborhood and you drove by and you saw the house, would you have any clue anyone lived there? No, No, because you didn't know what it looked like before. 
That's a great description of us. A lot of times people look at us and they're like, man, you are rough around the edges. And you're like, you have no idea who I was before. I am a work in progress. People need that grace. People need the room to grow and mature. It's crazy to me how I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years and someone maybe just gotten saved or they're just working out their salvation and I can be so hard on them when they're light years ahead of where I was when I first started walking with Jesus. People need space to grow. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin, but there's some things that we can just let go and give people the grace and the love that covers a multitude of sins. That's long-suffering. That's what it means to not be easily offended. So that's long-suffering. Now, the the partner of long-suffering is bearing with one another. And this is key, too. How many of us are just carbon copies of one another? You understand what I'm saying? Let, Let me rephrase it. How many of you married someone that's exactly like you? Oh, that's weird. None of us. How many of you married someone and you're still learning how 20, 30, 40 years later, how different you guys think? That, that's life. We are all so unique. We are all, um, we all look at life just a little bit differently, don't we? We have different quirks and different personalities and different interests and different gifts and the fact that we can exist together and be so different but still love one another and serve one another that brings glory to God that unity and diversity that tells a story about who God is especially even in that small community of a family the fact that we can live in the same house and still love one another that can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's what the body of Christ should be, where we're patient with one another's personality quirks, that we understand we're unique. And that's what makes fellowship so rich. I'm sure there's things that I do, and you guys are like, what? Why does he do that? I I don't know why. I just, that's who I am. Some of you are close talkers. That's a good thing. Some of you guys are huggers. Some of you guys are side huggers. Some of you guys talk really loud. Some of you guys talk quiet. We are all so different, but that's what's beautiful about it. And there's unity when we can say, yeah, you're different and I love you. The world says, you're different, get away. The church today, what do we do? We find churches that are full of people like us who think exactly like us, and then we stake our claim there, and then what do you have? A very homogenistic fellowship. That's one thing I'm so, we're not a perfect church, but we're different, and I like that. And what holds us all together? What does Paul say? Look at verse 2 again. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in 
love. Again, we're talking biblical love here. We're not talking about the world's definition of love. We're talking about self-sacrificial, giving others preferential treatment, putting someone else's needs above my own, that kind of love. The love that lays down their life for a friend, that kind of love. This is what it means to endeavor to keep the unity. Guys, if we're easily offended, we need to get that worked out. If someone doesn't have to say much to get us riled up, we need to start working that out. If someone looks at us wrong, or they not, maybe sometimes we get offended just because of what someone didn't say to us. We need to start working that kind of stuff out. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's quick to forgive. And who's responsible for this? by what every joint supplies. We're all called to this. We each have a supernatural gift from God that when exercised, it strengthens the body and reminds the body of who we are in Christ. It matures the body. It allows the body of Christ to see Jesus more clearly. See, if I or when I exercise my gift of teaching, it should be a supernatural thing. It should be something that, not because of me, my wife would be the first one to say, it's not because of him, it's simply because he is exercising his gift. But Pastor John and I are not the only ones who have a gift to be used. Every single one of us have a vital role to play as we fellowship together, just as vital a role as teaching and preaching. That's, again, where the American church gets it wrong. Church is not about everyone coming together and watching one person exercise his gift for 30, 45 minutes. That's not the body. What if just your eye worked all day long, just your eye? That's the only thing that was doing anything. That'd be ridiculous. We are a body, a full body. See, all of us, Paul says, have these manifestations of the Spirit through the gifts we have been giving and they're not of this world. We're not talking about talents. We're not talking about simple abilities. We're talking about unexplainable, otherworldly kinds of gifts. And I'm not talking about signs and wonders. Again, the ability to love someone in a way where you put them and their needs above your own, that's miraculous. It's not human nature to do that. To love someone who can't necessarily love you back, to, some, to love someone and offer to them your time and energy when they have no way of repaying you, that is not natural. That is not normal. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what it means to put on Christ. And that's what we need to see See, when you guys operate in your gifts, you're exposing the body to the glory of God. And what happens when someone is exposed to the glory of God? Think about Scripture. What happens in Scripture when someone sees the glory of God? 
they are changed. And that's, our, that's, that's what's at stake here. We're talking about being made into the image of Christ, and we depend on one another for that work. We make it such an individualistic pursuit. Is there an individual responsibility? Yes, all of us have a responsibility to commune with God on our own, but when we're together, we should be laying down our lives for one another, because when we do, we are exposing everyone to the nature and love of God. We get to see His character. We get to see his supernatural power. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I just, I would ask, again, Paul is not just giving us a, a list of hoops to jump through. He's begging us to walk in that newness of life this high calling that we've been called to, that we are redeemed and we're adopted and we've been bought by the blood of Christ. We belong to Him and there's a new life available to us. But to learn to walk in that, we need one another. We need to lean on one another. We need to have a heart that is forgiving with one another, long-suffering, humble, laying down that pride, laying down this idea that we're here to be served instead of putting on the mind that Christ had. We are here to serve one another. It's an amazing thing when everyone has that mindset. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the head. We are the hands and feet. We are your body. And Lord, everyone in this room we're, we're, we struggle with our enemies, with the broken systems of this world, with the lies of the devil, and with our own flesh demanding to be served. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with ego. We struggle with wanting to be served, wanting to make our name known, wanting to be uh, loved and appreciated. But you're our example. You are the one that humbled yourself. Before you ascended, you descended. You came as a man. Not only to serve, but to come and die, to lay down your life. When you had the power to take it back, you had the power to stop all of those brutal activities that took place the night of your crucifixion. But you endured because you love us. So teach us to have thick skin and soft hearts. Help us to bear with one another. None of us have arrived. We are all simply beggars trying to show other beggars where to find food. but we belong to you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us your own. We know our time is short, so help us to not only be busy about your business, but diligent in keeping the unity that we have in you. Lord, we love you and ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand and go out with a shout.